joining us today on Scripps' fourth quarter earnings preview podcast. I'm Jessica Merrill, a reporter at Scripps, and I'm joined by my colleague Mandy Jackson and Data Monitor uh, Financial Content Head Derek Burkhardt. We've wrapped up the virtual J.P. Morgan Healthcare meeting, and we're starting on the fourth quarter and year-end 2020 sales and earnings results. And we wanted to do this podcast to set the stage for the year ahead. And so you could hear more about what the reporters at Script are listening out for as we head into the financial season. Uh, Mandy, Derek, do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, hi, I'm Mandy Jackson. I'm a managing editor for U.S. Commercial News. And then I'm Derek Burkhardt. I'm head of financial content for Data Monitor and Biomed Tracker. Um, we kind of operate all the forecasts that, that live across the commercial products as well as a lot of the other financial data. Okay, great. So we've got a great group gathered here today. And of course, we want to take a little bit of a crystal ball peek into the year ahead, but it's not easy. Uh, as we all know, a year ago around this time, we had no idea of the magnitude of the challenges that would be coming in 2020. And now a lot of what plays out in 2021 will depend on how quickly we're able to recover from the global pandemic caused by COVID-19. And a lot of that has to do with how the pharmaceutical industry has provided solutions. So it's a really exciting time to be in the pharmaceutical industry. And at JP Morgan, we got some sense of where the big biopharma industry is at heading into 2021. Um, I guess, Derek, Mandy, you guys um, have any big takeaways in terms of what's expected um, on the, the growth front in 2021? Yeah, you know, at, at JP Morgan during the presentations and, and talking to executives, you know, we're, we're hearing that they're expecting growth, but COVID still will be a, a big uh, issue, at least in the first half, in terms of being able to get out there and sell products. Um, seems like everybody's saying the second half will will look a lot better than the first half. So sort of the same story as last year when COVID kicked in. Um, but you have a lot of companies that are still saying they're going to grow quite a bit. Lilly's expecting uh, about 11% growth in 2021. They are one of the companies that gave their uh, forecast for this year even before JP Morgan. So we're, we're expecting growth. It's still probably going to be pretty bumpy in the first half of the year. So um, we'll see maybe on this call at JP Morgan, they were still saying they didn't know how much this late fall, early winter surge in COVID cases was impacting their sales, but uh, maybe they'll have a better read on that when they start talking about their earnings. Yeah, and I would say, broadly speaking, a lot of companies kind of pre-announced Q4 um, in front of JPM so they could talk about the quarter and also more about 21. And it seems like the majority of pharma ended the year pretty well. Um, obviously, some therapeutic groups um, were, were impacted by kind of uh, the surge in COVID cases kind of in, in North America and kind of globally. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail. But I, I would say broadly Q4 for the farm businesses mostly was, was fairly strong, so. Okay, so well, we have had two companies report already this week, Novartis and Johnson & Johnson. Uh, so that gives us a little bit of some insight into what to expect. And Novartis uh, is forecasting mid-single-digit growth this year and really highlighted this persistent challenge the pandemic is presenting despite the resiliency of medicines. 
Um, Novartis said the CEO said that their healthcare that healthcare systems are operating at about an 80% level. So they, he said that there's still lost some growth because of the continued impact of these stay-at-home orders, especially in dermatology and ophthalmology. Um, he said perhaps two to three percent of sales growth that did not materialize because of the pandemic, and that's probably going to be. Um, persistent into the first quarter and especially going up against really hard comparisons a year ago when there was a lot of stockpiling ahead of the pandemic. Uh, it sounds like the second quarter could be where things really start to bounce back, especially against what were really tough comparisons a year ago um, because of the pandemic. So that could be a, a positive quarter for the industry. J&J um, &J forecasted strong 9 to 11% growth in 2021, and J&J &J is really hoping to make up um, some of the impact of COVID-19 last year that really impacted its medical device segment, although pharma was way more resilient, it still had an impact, especially in the oncology. Um, so one variable that remains really interesting with J&J &J is the vaccine, the vaccine for COVID-19. I was hoping that they would announce the phase three data yesterday, and so that, and I think the whole world was hoping <laughs> that they would announce the phase three data. Uh, but they said they'll have that data available early next week, so we're left uh, waiting longer for that. Um, and that could be obviously really impactful for COVID-19 because this could be the first single-dose vaccine, but it could also um, be really impactful for J&J &J because the reality is there's a lot of financial upside um, for the companies that are delivering these solutions for COVID-19, although there's still a lot of uncertainty. Um, you guys have thoughts? Well, you know, I think Gilead has been uh, interesting in terms of the Clury or Remdesivir. I think they've uh, they've maybe not sold quite as much of that as was expected, but we'll we'll see going forward um, after these this recent surge uh, if sales picked up on that. But regardless, it's still um, additional um, sales that we wouldn't have expected them to have a year ago before all of this began. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the, the antibody therapies, uh, so far it seems like more of that's been sitting and not being used, uh, but that might change as well this year since those companies, Lilly and Regeneron, have reported recently um, some pretty good data in terms of um, both treatment and prevention with their therapies. So we'll, we'll see what that adds and what kind of commentary we get on that during earnings season. Yeah, and I, I think one of the most interesting data points that came out of JP Morgan around COVID was Gilead's talk about the Q4 sales of, of Veclurian. I mean, it, it went from a little bit shy of 900 million globally in Q3, with the majority of it happening in the U.S., to over 1.9 billion in uh, Q4. Um, again, with the majority of it in the U.S. Um, but so you can see, obviously, the scale of these purchase orders and the, the deliveries that these companies are able to make. I mean, some of the other uh, treatment companies here, uh, like Lilly, are, are a little bit behind in terms of the, the scale that they're producing at. Um, Regeneron's kind of in that boat as well. They're, they've generated a couple hundred million in sales. Um, but I think the, the interesting thing to watch going forward is the push and pull between the scale of vaccines being delivered and the sales being recognized there and how that impacts the sales of the treatment products and what that means for the longer term revenue potential for Gilead, Lilly, Regeneron, et cetera here. Um, 
And I think if we if we want to talk about the vaccines a little more, I I, I agree, Jessica, that I I would have expected J and J to disclose some of the data on the earnings call. Um, the timing lined up with what they talked about. Um, they've had the trial enrolled for for over a month now, and uh, per the design that that they posted, they they should have the interim uh, analysis complete. So um, it's it, it would be beneficial relative to both the the Pfizer BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine and the fact that it's a one dose uh, program. So 100 million doses equals 100 million patients or 100 million people, as opposed to kind of having to split the existing EUA vaccines into obviously into a first dose and then a booster. Um, I, I think looking at expectations for Moderna and I guess Pfizer and BioNTech this year, it's it's very interesting because the revenue expectations that, that are built into the financials don't match, or I should say don't even get anywhere close to what the companies have disclosed for advanced purchase agreements. I mean, at, at JPM, Moderna said they have $11.7 billion in customer deposits, um, and that's and that's just for fiscal 21. So the, I don't think consensus is near that figure. Um, and I think there's a similar, I mean, I, I don't know offhand what the figure is for Pfizer and BioNTech, but we've already seen the US government come back for more orders for the from these companies. I'm sure that, that Europe and, and other developed markets will come back um, for more orders. And then I, I think a lot of it does then depend on what the data from J&J shows, what the, the, the U.S. trial from AstraZeneca shows, um, because obviously getting more of these vaccines out will, will only be beneficial to, to the world. So, Yeah, so I'm, I'm really going to be curious to hear um, what Pfizer has to say during their conference call on February 2nd. Uh, Albert Borla at J.P. Morgan said they would wait until that call to provide a forecast, including the vaccine. So it'll be interesting. That will be the first time we actually hear from Pfizer about what they expect the financial impact to be from the vaccine. And um, it's going to be obviously a huge blockbuster and one that the company didn't even expect to have a year ago. So it's really remarkable. Um, And I guess the big question is uh, how how big that business will be and how long it will be uh, persist. And I guess uh, it sounds like increasingly it could be quite a durable business. I mean, that is what um, Pfizer's biopharmaceuticals president, Angela Huang, said during uh, JP Morgan that they're starting to believe it's a really durable business because there's going to be variants, there's going to be need to be boosters, and this could be an ongoing, you know, multi-year development of the vaccine. So that's one thing I'm going to be really um, interested to hear about. I'm also really interested to hear more from Regeneron and Lilly about the rollout of these antibodies, which could be so helpful to so many patients, and yet they really haven't gotten off the ground. Um, and I'm wondering if the, the new data that's come out in the last couple of days will really help to get those, um, make a bigger effort to get those through. Um, Anyway, so there's plenty of other therapeutic areas, too, that I'm interested in, in hearing about. Do you guys have thoughts? Um, I have a couple, but if if one of you wants to weigh in. Well, it'll be interesting to see um, what, you know, again, what the COVID impact is, is on a lot of different therapeutic areas. I mean, we're hearing, you know, some of the conversations I had during J.P. Morgan that sounded like areas like migraine and psoriasis where patients 
are suffering, but maybe are not suffering so much they want to risk getting COVID by going to the doctor to get new prescriptions. You know, those those were are still um, off. I think somebody told me 10 to 15 percent or 15 to 20 percent compared to um, past times. So or where expectations would be. So um, it'll be interesting to see how long the expectation is that that will persist. Um, and then oncology, I guess, is um, recovering more because that's more of a life or death situation for patients. And uh, uh, it, it sounds like, you know, I was talking to Ann White, um, the head of Lilly Oncology, about that. And she said, you know, they're, they're definitely seeing more strength in their oral medicines than in infused medicines. And they're seeing doctors uh, switch patients to oral medicines or, you know, drugs that can be given at home. So um, oncology is recovering, but still um, seeing some some impact from COVID. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's different with rare diseases as well that are um, life or death situations. You're, you're not going to see parents delay treatment on spinal muscular atrophy or things like that. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see um, therapeutic area by therapeutic area what what's happening um, this year. Uh, I was thinking too, I'm interested in multiple sclerosis, which I think will be developing further this year. Um, it's obviously a very competitive category already. And now we have uh, Biogen's Tecfidera has gone to generic, which should impact not only Biogen, but also other competitive drugs in the category, drugs like Gelenia um, and, and Biogen's new launch, Vumerity. Uh, and then we have a whole another set of new launches that have come in with Novartis's Casimpta and uh, Bristol Myers Squibb's Zaposia. So um, those will be going up against Roche's very successful Acrovis. And so I think that'll be sort of an interesting category to watch. Um, I'm not sure of how the COVID um, pandemic has impacted that, but I think one where uh, patients have may, maybe also been sitting out some visits. Um, and Derek, anything you want to add? No, yeah, I think the MS space is going to be very interesting over the next few years because, as you mentioned, the biggest drug um, or the, I guess, the one of the leading market share drugs in Tecfidera did just go generic. And I guess it was an early surprise generic launch given the, the outcome of the court case. But when you have a drug with the size of market share that it had, and I think importantly, it is oral. And so it's the only oral option for these. Pay I mean, it, there are other oral branded drugs, but it's going to be the or only oral generic drug. Um, everybody was expecting either Galenia or Abagio in, in 2022 to be the kind of first oral generic drug. But having what was the standard of care go generic almost a decade early, um, will throw this market into, uh, I think there's a decent amount of upheaval coming. Um, you mentioned the, the CD20s, um, Acrevis, uh, recently launched Casimpta, and then there's uh, one of the pipeline from, I think, TG Therapeutics. Um, the, I would say, consensus at this stage of the figures that management is pointing to is that those drugs will capture 40%, give or take, of the market. And it's interesting there because obviously that market's being driven or that segment, excuse me, is being driven solely by Acrevis right now. And it already has more than 20 percent, probably 25 percent plus of the total market, at least in the U.S., by the end of this year. 
So are Kisimta and Ublituximab fighting over 15% total? Or is there other shifts coming, like uh, Kisimta's dosing advantages being subcutaneous versus acrobis's infusion? Um, and and so we'll have to to see how that goes. I mean, I would say the first quarter of for Kisimta wasn't too bad, acknowledging that 70% of the patients are still on the free trial program. So instead of the, I think, $14 million in revenue they reported yesterday, I mean, that actually works out to be north of $50 million plus in, in kind of net revenue once you account for the free patient program. And then obviously that goes even higher when you factor in gross to net. So, I mean, Ocarus's first quarter was almost $200 million, if I remember properly. So... It, it just goes to show in order to be a blockbuster in this space, which, I mean, Octavis already is, given it's generating over a billion dollars in sales a quarter. Um, but but Kisimta is probably on its way there, and it'll be interesting to see if some of the other drugs that you mentioned that recently launched, like Zyposia, like Maze, and um, Vumerity even, what how their performance kind of changes from here, because their initial launches haven't been as successful, I would say. So... It'll be interesting to watch going forward because you're the, the market is going to start genericizing pretty rapidly. You've got Techfidera, as I mentioned before, then Galenia, which Novartis doesn't expect to go generic this year, but should be going. I mean, depending on the outcome of court case, could go generic at, at any time, but it should be generic by the end of the decade. And then Abagio is going generic, which um, even though it doesn't have as much share as these other drugs, it's still kind of, I, I would say, one of the safest um, of the high, high, high efficacy drugs, um, and it's being used as the comparator in the majority of these clinical trials for the developmental stage drugs. So um, it's definitely a dynamic market, interesting to watch. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting space. Are there drugs launches you guys are interested in? Um, you're going to be tracking closely. One I was really interested in was Inclacerin from Novartis uh, for high cholesterol. That's the PCSK9 uh, that they were going to be launching, but that has now been pushed back in the U.S. Um, at, due to a complete response letter because of inability to, uh, to, to go to the manufacturing facility for an inspection. Um, so that's one that is we won't be able to track this year, and it sounds like it, it may not um, it may not come through until late in the year, um, depending on what happens with the pandemic. Um, and I guess I will also mention, you know, aducanumab um, here from Biogen, if uh, it is indeed approved, um, which remains to be seen. That's for Alzheimer's disease, which, of course, everyone is closely watching. Do you guys have other um, drug launches that come to mind? Well, you know, I think um, the you hit on an overarching theme um, that uh, we have drugs that aren't able to launch because they can't get an approval until uh, inspectors can go in and look at their manufacturing facilities. <laughs> and we don't have any idea, I don't think, from FDA when they're going to lift their ban on travel, although it sounds like they're starting to do that um, outside the U.S., so we'll, we'll see. But, um, you know, Bristol-Myers Squibb has two big um, cell therapies that um, they're trying to get approved. Um, they've already confirmed that one will not be approved on time. Um, that was um, lysocell for um, for a lymphoma, and uh, they also have um, 
IDASEL for multiple myeloma that um, has a decision due um, within the next couple of months. So we'll see if that also is delayed. Um, it, I imagine it will be <laughs> at this point. Um, but we have some late stage programs that are going to be interesting to watch too in terms of their filings. And, and Bristol has their, their TIC2 inhibitor for psoriasis, which would be another oral option. And they've already shown in their phase three study that they did better than Otesla, which they sold to Amgen. So um, those are going to be some interesting um, ones to keep an eye on from Bristol this year. Um, and, and um, you know, in terms of Alzheimer's, that's that whole space is heating up again um, with Lily coming in and announcing their phase two positive results for denanumab, which is also an amyloid tar targeting agent, but um, has uh, is a little different from what they've done in the past. So we'll see um, how that goes. They're, they're calling their phase two studies uh, potentially pivotal trials, and they may be able to get some sort of... Um, accelerated approval on this first set of phase two data that they're they're going to be presenting in March. So Alzheimer's again is a space to keep an eye on, which is, you know, nice to hear uh, after so many years of failure. Yeah, and I think just going off of a couple of drugs you mentioned there, um, in terms of Bristol's tick, I mean, they they talked about at JP Morgan, how they expect more than $4 billion in, in peak sales for the drug, which would place it, I believe, above Otesla. Um, I can't remember the current figure for Otesla, but it, at least comparable, if not better than Otesla. And you do know that the phase three program for uh, Ducrevitinib is uh, using Otesla as a comparator. So um, that's a very interesting one to watch. Um, and then we had been doing some analysis on, on our team about the drug launches in uh, over the past few years and the for the drugs that got approved by by cedar in in 2020 i mean obviously this data is only for the first three quarters of the year because we don't have the full q4 figures yet but i mean broadly speaking the launches of drugs that were approved in 2020 i would say were broadly disappointing um and obviously there's some impacts from COVID that come into play here. Some of these drugs are only approved for very narrow indications because of the targeted development that's going on. Um, but through through the third quarter, based on the data that, that we found, drugs that were approved in 2020 had generated only $1.3 billion in sales. And that might sound great, but we need to remember that Veclury generated almost $800 million of that. So out if you take Veclury out of the equation, drugs approved in 2020 have only generated again through the end of September a little bit more than 500 million in sales. Um, and then it's, and I guess that's that was the the figure for the third quarter of 2020. Um, and it's then even more interesting when you think that one drug, uh, Tepeza from Horizon for thyroid eye disease, generated more than half of that. Figure. So this means the other 40 plus launches have only generated get a little bit more than $200 million in sales in, in the third quarter of, of 2020. So that's not great. And so it'll be interesting to see how fast that trajectory changes for recently launched drugs. And I mean, we're seeing it for a couple of key ones we talked about, Casinta already. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if it's the majority of its impact from COVID that meaning you can't get out and really market these new drugs to physicians and, and patients, um, or if it's a broader 
just uh, issue going on with with the market that these drugs are all targeted, therefore smaller indication, lower peak sales potential, or um, if there's anything else going on that, that I haven't thought of. So, yeah. I think a lot of these drugs too now, they, they start with a small initial indication with the goal of ramping up over time through indication expansion, especially in oncology. And we're just seeing these launch trajectories really growing out over several years. Um, so it's really a change from, from uh, how we've seen drugs launch in the past. Of course, I do think COVID had a huge impact because it is just so hard to get out there with new products when patients aren't even going in to see their, their physicians or skipping visits. Um, so I think it's time to pivot to another big topic, which everyone is always interested in, which is deal-making, um, M&A, and what we could be expecting for the year. Uh, it sounds like uh, maybe COVID did have take a little bit of the wind out of the sails of deal-making in 2020, and that could be a factor going to 2021 where maybe we see more deal activity, um, especially as people have gotten used to uh, reaching deals via Zoom and virtual meetings as opposed to face-to-face -face meetings. I think that bolt-on deals still seem to be the name of the game, what everyone is talking about, at least publicly, um, about what they're looking to spend and what they're sort of looking for, things that fit into their current therapeutic areas, you're not hearing a lot of people saying they're out for, for big or anyone saying they're out for big M&A, although you never know what could materialize. Um, I think um, one question is if Pfizer might buy BioNTech, uh, that could be an interesting deal as they've gotten their foot into the mRNA space and seeing how quickly it can become um, a pivotal program for them. Uh, what else are you guys hearing out there? Yeah, I think um, more of the same in terms of bolt-on deals. Um, everybody's saying, you know, we're we're not going to make big acquisitions, but we are going to do a lot of smaller acquisitions. Um, my favorite quote from the meeting was Amgen CEO Bob Bradway saying, "We have we have deep pockets but short arms," uh, meaning that they're not going to spend a lot on any deals, but they will do deals. They'll be selective about business development. They'll they'll spend. Um, relatively small amounts of money compared with the billions in cash they have on hand. Um, and Lily is saying the same kind of thing. You know, they they think that going forward, they need three drugs approved a year to hit the growth rates that they're projecting. And uh, to do that, they think that a third of those, so at least one of those new launches every year is going to have to come from outside. So they're they're looking to do bolt-on deals like they've been doing um, in the one billion dollar range, like their um, Dermira acquisition last year and Prevail um, last month, um, to uh, keep the pipeline full. They um, they're like everybody else. All all these companies need to keep filling the pipeline so that they can get these programs going and fast-tracked and start pumping out <laughs> new products because they have expirations coming up, if not now, later in the decade. Um, so they're, you know, they're active. They're definitely looking to buy and bring in because even as um, as much money as they're pumping into their own R&D, they've, they've got to bring in things from outside and it'll be interesting to see what, what kind of things start grabbing the attention. There's always some something new every year that start where you start to see um, more deals. I think last year, things like CD47 inhibitors um, 
more attractive for deals and you know there, there's always a pile on and different therapeutic areas or targets yeah and i would say from the the bigger company side of things i guess three that i'm interested in watching and, and you already talked about one of them was uh pfizer but they're going to be getting now that they've completed the viatris uh spinoff um so they got 12 billion in cash from that um they've stated they're going to be using that to pay down debt um to address their leverage profile but that means then that their current cash generation and their current cash proceeds from just operating their business could be applied maybe more aggressively to uh business development and m a and they've expressed that they want to look at um assets that can get approved kind of in the mid 2020s to address their current kind of loe uh timing for their 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 products and those uh primarily are uh eloquist and i grants so that's that's some of what pfizer's talking about merck is in a similar situation um they're still working on getting the spin of organ undone but they'll get um eight to nine billion in cash from that um there might be some of the similar situation with pfizer in terms of the merck might look to pay down some debt but that's still excess cash that a big pharma didn't have before. Um, and then I think the last one, and, and really, I guess the, the change at, at JPM that, that was announced was Vertex. And they came out and actually saying, I mean, historically, Vertex has done M&A in the $1 billion level, and they've focused on very early stage assets, either, I mean, predominantly preclinical, but some, some phase one. And they've actually stated that they're willing to now pay up and look at more mid to late stage assets. And I think that's due to the performance of some of their their acquisitions so far and maybe either being slower than expected or just maybe not uh, delivering the results that they've been looking for. So that's an interesting one because they're going to generate a lot of cash from their cystic fibrosis program for the next decade and how they deploy that cash and how they diversify their pipeline and their revenue streams away from cystic fibrosis is something that people are looking at and, and wanting a lot more information on. So that that's definitely one that's interesting to me because we also have a new CEO there. Um, the, the change happened kind of in the middle late end of 2020, if I remember right. So there's that that that's one company that that is going to be very interesting to keep an eye on as well. Okay. Um, well, it sounds like we've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about uh, the growth prospects for 2021, uh, the COVID impact and uh, the vaccines and therapeutics that could be coming to the market and deal making, new launches. Uh, there's plenty of other things I know we're all going to be listening out for. Um, for example, uh, one thing is drug pricing policy uh, in the U.S., which really has fallen to the back burner amid the whole political trans transition and also COVID, you know, being at front and center and ending this global health crisis. Um, so far, we haven't heard a lot about that or the new president, Joe Biden, um, and his administration and what that could bring. But maybe we'll hear some commentary during the calls. And um, I do think it's one thing that's always an undercurrent across the industry. It always rises back up to the surface. I'm sure that it will. And I know that the industry is interested in reaching some kind of um, drug pricing reform that addresses this affordability issue um, and to, to try and put this overhang behind it. Um, so that's one thing um, I think I'll be listening out for. Are there other things 
quickly anything that comes to mind just um, that will be interesting. Well, you know, new data is always uh, of interest. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of anticipation for what's next, what's coming, um, whether that comes through deals or um, just products in the pipeline. There's a lot of big milestones for a lot of programs uh, coming up over this year. Yeah, no, you said it well, Mandy. Um, I, I agree that it's primarily just seeing some more data come out from these companies, seeing the sales as they um, come out in the earnings releases and just kind of understanding the undercurrents of how the market um, and, and by that I mean just how the kind of patient market in the landscape and how COVID is impacting that um, and how that impacts kind of individual therapy areas and individual drugs overall. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Derek and Mandy, for joining me on this uh, podcast. Thank you to everyone who listened in and please do follow along in script um, to follow the updates as the companies report their fourth quarter and 2020 year end sales and earnings. Uh, follow along with Data Monitor and Biomed Tracker 2. And I think that's a wrap on our script podcast. <laughs>